All right. Well, like I said, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here. And I am so excited about what I believe the Lord has in store for us as a people this year. I believe God has something in store for our house, and I believe he has something in store for your house in the area of joy. And specifically what I wanna share with you today is that I believe that the Lord wants to father you in the area of joy and gladness. That God has a passion and a plan for your joy, and he wants to intentionally father you in that and grow you in the area of joy and happiness. I was listening to a podcast this week where a man was speaking about his father and he said, my dad was the best money person I ever knew. That his dad was just good at business, he was good at budgets, he was good at planning and forecasting and all of those things. And, and the son said, my dad had an intentional plan to develop me in those areas. So he would pull me in even as a, as a young man and he would teach me and he would train me and he would model for me what doing well with finances look like. And so this guy now leading a very large organization said, I have this confidence in the area of money management that I realized was given to me by my father's intentionality in investing in me. That's what fathering is. It's not controlling, it's not manipulating, it's not just forcing something on someone, but it's influencing from a place of strength, taking time and intentionality to invest, to apprentice, to show someone this is how it's done. Let me lead you in this direction. And that man was speaking about what a blessing his father's intentionality and fathering him in finances was for him and now for so many through his organization. And I believe that the Lord in a similar way wants to father you and me, wants to father us in the area of joy and gladness. That he wants to intentionally pull us near and from a place of strength that he has, a reservoir of joy. He wants to apprentice us, to teach us, to train us, to model us and help us grow and grow and grow in joy this year. And so I want to make it very specific for you. Last week, we, we learned that Jesus was the most joyful person who ever walked the face of this earth. He was the greatest practitioner of joy in all of human history. So he has joy to teach us about. And today, we're going to learn about God's plan for your joy. So I want you to turn to your neighbor and just say, God's plan for your joy. Yes. Okay. God has a plan for your joy. And so uh, in the seat back in front of you, you'll notice there's some journals there. You might have brought a journal of your own or your Bible. I'd encourage you to take both of those things out, something to write with. I'd encourage you to take the scriptures out because we're going to go to God's word and we're going to see God's plan for our joy today. So if you are taking notes, I would just tile this, God has a plan for my joy. And then I want you to fill in a blank. And the blank is this. I want you to think about one area of your life one area that you're like, man, I wish I had more joy in this area. It might be, I wish I had more joy in my relationship with God. It might be, I wish I had more joy uh, in my roommate situation or with my spouse. It might be, I wish I had more joy at work. I wish I had more joy uh, with my kids. Whatever it may be, I want you to think about the situation for you and I want you to write down, God has a plan for my joy in, and then fill in the blank for you. In my 
finances, in my marriage, in my work, whatever it may be, God has a plan for your joy, and I want you to personalize it. The main scripture uh, that we're working from is John chapter 17, verse 13. And we're gonna be there today, uh, but I wanna paint a picture for you again if you weren't here last week of this time that we're taking as a church that's an experiential journey in the area of joy. Each week, uh, this month of January, we're gonna be teaching uh, here on Sunday mornings about joy and God's passion and plan for your joy. Uh, Next week, we're gonna cover specifically practices that God gives us that help us to grow in joy. Because I don't know about you, it's very easy for me to get discouraged. It's very easy for me to get dismayed. It's very easy for me to get down. It's very easy for me to get anxious and fearful and all these things that are the opposite of joy, right? But God has intentional practices that we can work into our lives that help us, if we'll implement them, will help us be more joyful people like God desires to give to us. So that'll be next week. And then the experiential part that's that's gonna be uh, something new for us as a church, we've always been a church that's fasted. But starting on January 20th, we're gonna engage in the longest fast that we've done. We're gonna take 21 days and give them to the Lord for prayer and for fasting, contending for joy. Contending for joy specifically in the blank that you just filled in. In the first week, I'm gonna encourage all of us, I'm gonna give positive peer pressure uh, to fast from food at some level. Maybe for you that's a meal, maybe that's a day, maybe it's a couple days, maybe it's the whole week, but to take a week after coming out of this holiday season where we've been feasting, to say, I'm not gonna feast on food this week, I'm gonna feast on Jesus. And I'm gonna start my year focused and filled in him. And then week two, which I believe will be the more challenging week of the fast, honestly, I'm gonna challenge you to fast from media. I'm gonna challenge you to put your phone down, your iPad down, your Netflix down, your earbuds down, whatever it is that you, you know, how you take in media, because we saturate and we marinate ourselves in so many messages all the time. And so to take a week where we say, hey, I'm just gonna, for a week, I'm not saying that's bad, I'm just saying it's, it's no for right now. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna create some space just to seek the Lord. I was talking to a couple in our church who did last January, they did a media fast, and they heard we were doing one this January, and they're like, this was one of the best decisions we ever made, was to go on this media fast. And he said, what we didn't realize was how we had just begun to fill all of our spare time. Anytime we had a moment, we just get on our phone and kind of scroll through Instagram, you know, just check out what's going on. And when we we said, hey, we're gonna be intentional not to do that, I found we had so much more space and time that we were able to invest in a renewed way in seeking the Lord. We were able to invest in a renewed way in our marriage and do some things that we'd wanted to do, but just never really found time to do. And so for a week, I'm gonna encourage you to, instead of marinating on social media or movies or whatever, I'm gonna encourage you to marinate on the joy of Jesus. And then the third week of the fast is gonna be fasting from negativity, criticism, and complaining. So that would be very challenging as well. And in an election year, I know that this year is going to be filled with all three of those things from every side. And so we as the people of God, let us go first in starting the year, kind of getting that stuff out of our system. Say, I'm not going there. I'm going to set my mind on the things above. And I'm gonna fill my mind 
with things that are praiseworthy rather than just kind of all the things I could grumble about. So three weeks, intentional time of fasting, coupled with prayer, all contending for the joy that I believe the Lord wants to father us in. And I want to encourage you to jump in. I want to encourage you to be a part. I want to encourage you to go on this journey with us. And I believe that you'll be transformed in powerful ways as we take and respond to what the Lord is doing in our midst. John 17, 13, Jesus speaking. And this is our key text for this series. He said, I'm coming to you now, speaking to the Father. He said, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. So Jesus here speaking, saying that he desires for you, for us, his people, saying, I desire for them to have the full measure of my joy within them. So last week we saw the full measure of Jesus' joy was infinite. That he has this infinite reservoir of joy that he longs not just to keep to himself, but that he longs to put within you and within me. God desires for you to be joyful. God desires for you to be happy. And he is wanting to take his joy and put that within us. And that is a beautiful idea. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful dream and desire that Jesus is articulating here. But I want you to know, and I imagine you already do know, there is such a big difference between someone who has a dream and a desire, and man, I, I, this is what I want for them, versus someone who has a plan. I know things have moved to a very different place when someone tells me, hey, I've got this desire and I've got this plan. I realize when the plan comes into place, okay, this thing is really moving forward. It's not just gonna stay in kind of a sentimental realm this might come to pass. It has to be coupled with execution on the plan. You have to work the plan, but the plan is so important. And what I want you to see is that Jesus is not just expressing a sentiment that he hopes and he desires that you would be joyful, but he's also saying here in this text that he has a plan for your joy and mine. Look in the middle clause in this passage of scripture that starts with but and ends with world. He says this, he says, but I say these things while I am still in the world. So what's he talking about there? He's talking about his words. He's talking about his teaching. He's talking about what he came to impart and to teach humanity. He's talking about the word of God. And he's saying, I have spoken these words. I have given them my word, the words of scripture. I've given to them for this purpose that the fruit of them taking it in and letting it shape their lives and let it become what they live from, that the fruit of that would be that they would walk in joy. Simply put, Jesus saying, if you'll take his teaching and you will let him lead you and you will follow his teaching, you'll obey his word, that within that, that is his plan and his word will lead you, obedience will lead you into greater joy in your life will lead you into joy in your relationship with God, will lead you into joy in other relationships, will lead you into being a joyful person. So it's his word, and here we find his plan for our joy. Jesus has a passion, and he has a plan for your joy. 
Now, we don't often think about uh, Scripture, Jesus' words, as being for our joy. It's not something that just kind of we naturally think goes together. One of my mentors, he said, you know, uh, as a teenager, he had come to Christ as a child. And he said, as a teenager, he thought, man, I think I might have made a bad decision. I wish I had come to the Lord when I was an old man, right before I was going to die. Because I want to go to heaven, but it seems like being a Christian now, it means I can have no fun. I see what my friends are doing. I want to be happy. I want to do what they're doing. And I feel like if I go and do that, I feel convicted. I feel like a hypocrite because I know I'm a Christian and I shouldn't be doing that. But then when I sit in church and I hear about what my friends are doing, I'm like, man, I wish I was out there having fun. I want to be happy. I want to be joyful. So he said, I think I just, I wish I'd have waited longer in life. He didn't see joy and God as fitting together. He saw them as polar opposites. And there was a radical transformation in his life and relationship with God when he realized that God was not out to kill his joy. God was not out to keep him from joy, but that God's desire was to lead him into joy, into real and lasting, a settled joy. That's what God had for him. When he realized that, his life fundamentally shifted. I remember as a newlywed, I shared this with you last week, reading a book, and the, the counsel was that your marriage is not meant to make you happy, it's meant to make you holy, right? Again, we don't really put happiness and holiness together. And so what we take from that in the area of marriage or any other area of discipleship, if that's our thought process, we're like, well, my happiness doesn't matter. God doesn't care about what would make me happy. God cares about what would make me holy. So I need to buckle down. I need to get intense. I need to get serious. I need to get focused. I, got, I need to follow the Lord, right? And that means getting your face like this and never smiling. So be real intense. But what I want to share with you and what I want to take you through today is that God's holiness and your happiness are not divergent ends of some pole. They're not opposites. But that your happiness is found along the way of holiness. That God's holiness leads to our happiness. That when we follow Jesus and we take his teaching and we follow it, it not only leads you to be a holy person, but it leads you into happy holiness. That means following Jesus like this. Doesn't mean your life is always perfect. Doesn't mean everything's gonna work out the way you want to, right? But there is a settled joy that's deeper than the circumstances that you or I are going through that Jesus desires to plant in our life. This concept is not just found here in this scripture, it's found throughout the Bible. I want to take you into the Old Testament, to Psalm 19. And here we see even the same idea in the Old Testament. It says, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. So what this is saying is God's word, God's command, God's teaching. It is right. It is the way to go. It is true. And the byproduct is that in following it, it will give joy to your heart. Hearing it gives a measure of joy, but when we follow it, it gives deep joy to our hearts. And what I'm hoping today over last week and this week is that there would be a change in posture 
in your lives. I'm hoping for a posture change, just to get a little interactive right now. Just, just shift in your seat, change your posture a little bit. From leaning back in the seat, I want you to lean forward for just a minute. You can lean back in the minute, but just lean forward. Shift in posture. Shifts in posture are a powerful thing. I was reading about Billy Graham, the famous evangelist, and how he dealt with criticism. Because he was often criticized, and he said that there was a, a shift that happened for him when he realized that a critic and a coach said the same thing, but just with a different heart. The coach said things so that you would get better because they were for you and they were trying to develop you. The critic said the same thing, but they said it from a place of wanting to tear you down. So he said, I made this shift that every time I got criticism, I was gonna look at it, and if it was true, I was gonna say, well, I'm gonna consider this free coaching. They may not have intended it this way, but I'm gonna take it as they're trying to coach me to be better, to grow, right? And that posture shift allowed him, that perspective shift allowed him to endure significant criticism and to not become bitter, but become better because of it. And what I'm hoping to do in these two weeks is to change your posture and how you think about Jesus and how you think about his word. And I'm hoping that your posture is shifting from a Jesus who's mostly mad, mostly sad, or mostly aloof to a Jesus who is marked by gladness. That was last week. And this week, I'm hoping to add in there a belief that God has a plan for your joy and it's found in following his word. Because if we'll let that posture shift happen in our lives, we are prepared to grow in joy this year. And if we miss that, if we come into it with the wrong posture, we're gonna miss out on the good things that God wants to give to us. So posture shift. You can sit back in your seats however you want to now. Keep leaning forward if you'd like. Do you guys know what the most uh, frequent repeated command in all of scripture is? Uh, you might think like, do not kill, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not worship false gods. You might think those are the most frequent. The most frequent command is actually this, to be joyful, to rejoice. Some variant of that, uh, different ways of saying it, but over and over and over and over and over again, God commands us to be joyful. It's his desire for us. It's where he wants to lead us. I want to show you one scripture, Philippians 3. This is the apostle Paul, and he's writing from jail. He's chained to a guard, and not a place that most of us would associate with joy. And he says this, he said, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. Meaning he had already written it before, rejoice in the Lord. And it is a safeguard to you that our rejoicing in the Lord is something that keeps us safe, right? Commands like this are throughout scripture. It's the most repeated command or theme of the commands in the entire Bible. But now make sure you hear this. Um, I, I was watching a YouTube video yesterday on how to build a fire because I was snowing for 10 minutes. So I was like, surely we need a fire. So I'm, you know, I, I've been doing a fire all winter, but I'm not pleased with the quality of it. So I'm like, I know YouTube will have something for me to teach me how to build an amazing fire. So now I'm watching the video and we all do this. And I kind of watch the first 30 seconds and then I zone out because I think I got it. 
right? And so I kind of did what he did. I didn't, video's four minutes, but I didn't pay attention to the latter 3.30. You know, and I followed what he said for the first part. And, you know, the fire got going, okay, and then it died because I didn't follow the last three minutes and 30 seconds. Sometimes with this message about joy, we get the first 30 seconds, but we miss the following three minute and a half that we really needed to be able to experience that. And so what I wanna tell you is, don't check out right now with, oh, God wants me to be joyful. Okay, I just need to go and do what makes me happy. Right? That, that's not the full message. I wanna make sure you get that. Uh, there's a it's football season, football playoffs. I love them. There's an announcer who used to be a great player named Joe Theismann. And uh, he, at one point, cheated on his wife, and his response was, God wants me to be happy, right? And, and that's a, you know, extreme example, but we can often hear that message in our culture, is that God wants you to be happy, so that means go and do whatever would make you happy. But the problem is, we are not that good at knowing what will give us long-term joy and happiness. And so it's when we look to our maker, the one who made us, who designed us for joy, and we listen to him teach us how to walk in joy, that we actually experience lasting joy that doesn't leave regrets, doesn't leave casualties on the right or the left, doesn't leave a trail of broken relationships behind you, but leaves us with a lasting, settled joy. And to show you this, I wanna take you to one of the arteries of the New Testament, or Old Testament, rather, because I think I could show you, I think we could buy into Jesus uh, wants me to have joy. I think from, you know, Paul's letters, we could buy into places in the New Testament where it encourages that and exhorts us to that. But when you think about the Old Testament, if you ever read it, you're like, man, I feel like that was a lot of rules, a lot of regulations, a lot of if you don't do this, I'm going to zap you. Like, I don't really associate the Old Testament with joy. And so I want to take you into one of the arteries of the Old Testament. It may not be the central heartbeat of the Old Testament, but this is definitely like a main portion of the Old Testament. And I want to show you how even there, God's commands are for our joy. And what I hope is, is that you would see that and it would help you in your shift for the things that are going on in your life. That you would be like, man, I need to go to the Lord and trust him to lead me through his word into areas of joy rather than just doing what's comfortable, rather than just doing what's common, rather than just doing what's convenient, right? I need to be intentional about this. So Deuteronomy chapter five. This is the 10 commandments. Uh, one of the most famous passages of scripture in the entire Bible. The context for the 10 commandments is God has brought his people out of a cruel and bitter slavery that they had been in for 400 years in Egypt. Pharaoh had been a taskmaster. He had been uh, working them to the bone for generation after generation after generations, how they were fueling the economy. And the Israelites cry out to the Lord and the Lord has compassion on them. And he raises up Moses and he delivers them out of slavery. And he's bringing them into a land flowing with milk and honey, symbols of joy and happiness. And here he gives them the Ten Commandments. And far from being just some rules meant to box them in and keep them in line, these are commandments given that they might experience the joy 
that God desired for them to have. So the first three commandments are all summed up in God saying, I'm in charge. Pharaoh is no longer in charge. Your old boss is not in charge anymore. It's a new day. You're not in charge. I am in charge. That's the first three commandments. So then commandment four, which we're about to start with, is Deuteronomy 5, verse 12. This is God's day one on the, on the job with these people. First commandment that he's going to say other than I'm in charge. First order of business. Now imagine you go to work tomorrow and you find out that there's a new boss there. Your old boss you didn't like, they were a jerk, but now you got a new boss. And though you, you know, you're having a staff meeting day one where the new boss is gonna tell you kind of where things were going in the future. Some of you are getting actually happy thinking about that thought because you do not like your boss. But as that meeting approaches, you start to wonder, well, I knew what I was getting in my old boss. I knew it was a jerk. I don't know, this new boss might be worse. You get nervous, right? So the new boss calls everybody together, says, hey, I want you guys to know it's a new day, I'm in charge. And the first thing that I want to tell you, that's what we're gonna read next. Deuteronomy 5, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. As the Lord your God has commanded you, six days you shall labor, And do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals. Nor any foreigner residing in your town so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. What's, what's this saying? Day one, new boss, first order of business. Calls everybody together and he says, hey, I've been looking through the vacation logs. Looks like it's been a long time since any of you have had a break. First thing that I wanna do is I wanna make sure you have some time off. I wanna make sure you're well rested. I don't just wanna give you a day. I wanna make sure you're taking a day each week to rest and to replenish and to enjoy life. Now, if your boss did that, you would be quite apprehensive because like, what is the the ulterior motive here? There has to be like some hook behind this, some trick. Like I I just can't, this is too good to be true. The way we got a two-day weekend here in the United States was during the Great Depression. Things are hard, the economy's tight. And so business owners are trying to figure out how do they keep things afloat and they come up with a plan to say, hey, what if instead of giving people one day off, we give them two? And then when we give them that second day, we just decrease their pay. So they promoted it as, hey, we want you to have more time off. Now you're only gonna work five days a week and you're gonna get paid less, right? That's what we're kind of thinking. Wait, where's the hook on this? And what I want you to know is there's no hook. God is not telling them, hey, you're gonna take a day off and you're not gonna have what you need. God is saying, I am so good and I care about your joy so much, I wanna make sure you take a day off and I'm gonna provide enough in the six days you work to cover the seventh for your time off. Every week I'm gonna do that for you because I want you to be rested. I don't just want it for the rich and not for the poor, I want it for everyone. 
I don't just want it for the males and not the females. I want it for everyone. I don't just want it for the parents, but not the kids. I want it for everyone. I don't just want it for the residents there. I want it for the foreigners who are with you. I want this for everyone. This is my heart, that you would be rested and that you would enjoy life. Wow. Now, we as people, we often think we know better than God. We often think we know how to do things better than God. And so from time to time, people have tried to wipe out this idea of the Sabbath and to rearrange things based on their own best ideas. One example is the Soviet Union in uh, 1929. For 11 years, they decided to move to a five-day week. They were going to have a five-day week because they were trying to outlaw and abolish any kind of remembrance or connotation or allegiance to religion. And the Russian language, the day for Saturday is Sabbath, the day for Sunday is resurrection. So like, man, we got to get that out of our everyday vernacular. So they're changing the way we do the week. And they were believing that it was going to lead to greater prosperity because they thought they could be more efficient because they would still give everyone a day off, but it wouldn't be the same day off. So that way you would have one day off, your, your spouse would have another day off, your kid's school would have another day off. Your other kid's school would have a different day off, right? And by doing the different days off, they thought that things would run more efficiently because they could always keep their machines going. They could always keep their animals working. They could always keep things moving forward. What they found, though, in saying, God, we'll do it our way, or, or they believe there was no God. We're just going to take things into our own hands, right? What they found was that rather than leading to prosperity, it led to pain, what happened that they didn't foresee was that it broke down family relationships because there was never a time that the family could actually be together. So when families break down, societies break down. It broke down friendships. They said they had to classify people by color according to what day they had off and then try and coordinate people to get together based on common days off. And you might never have the same day off as your friend. You might never have the same day off as your spouse. You might never have the same day off as your kid. And you can imagine what that would do to relationships. But not only was it hard on the family, they said it actually didn't help their economic development because their machines began to break down from being overworked. Their animals began to break down from being overworked without giving them rest that God desired for people to have. Rather than prosperity, it led to pain. So when we look at this command, the heartbeat of this command is not, I'm trying to keep you from doing anything on the Sabbath day. The heart for this command is, I want to take care of you. I want to bless you. I want you to be rested. I want to give you joy. Next commandment, Deuteronomy 5, 16. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land. The Lord your God is giving you. Now, contrary to every Disney movie, because every Disney movie has the same plot, it's this. Kids uh, have parents that are out of, tate, out of date, out of touch, bitter, jaded, fearful, whatever it may be, and they're holding the kids back. And the kid, the way to life is when the kid would break free from doing what their parents thought was best and go out on their own and find themselves and do whatever was in their heart, and then they would experience joy and then by the end of the movie, they'd be reconciled with their parents because their parents would have come around to their perspective. Every, every Disney movie. And I'm not knocking the movies. I'm just saying, same plot line. If you'd like to make a lot of money, write a storyline like that, put some cartoon characters in it, and you're there. 
what I want to say, though, is that real life does not work that way. Many of us have scars in our lives because we didn't get this principle. Let me explain it. When kids don't learn how to honor mom and dad in the home, they go to school and they're not equipped to honor their teachers or their classmates. So what happens, and I'm a former teacher and I've got some scars because I, I didn't understand this growing up. What happens is that there are opportunities that would be available to them that will not come available to them because they don't know how to honor their teachers and they don't know how to honor their classmates. So they'll be so unpredictable, so disruptive, so difficult that opportunities will go to other people. And they'll be heartbroken because they really wanted to go on that field trip. They really wanted to get that class reward. They really wanted to get into that program. They really wanted to be a part of that club. And it's not gonna come available, not because they didn't have the talent, but because they didn't know how to handle themselves with people. They didn't know how to honor people. When they don't learn how to honor mom and dad at home, it's not just their teachers that are affected. They don't know how to honor their coaches in sports. And so again, opportunities that would be available to them. And you see this play out at every level of sports. There are opportunities that would be available to them that are lost, that they don't get to experience because they don't know how to honor their coach or their teammates. Kids that don't learn how to honor mom and dad in the home, don't learn how to honor their teachers, don't learn how to honor their coaches, they go into the workplace and they're ill-equipped to honor their bosses. They're ill-equipped to honor their customers. They don't know how to do it. And so again, opportunities for their blessing that would be available to them, that the Lord would desire for them to have, will not come their way because the boss feels like, man, this person is so disrespectful and they can't follow any instructions because they always just do it another way or they're on their own business, right? And they don't have repeat business because customers feel like, man, I felt so disrespected by the way that they went about things. That's real life. That's how real life works, contrary to the movies. And so when God is giving this command, he's giving it so that kids would be able to walk into blessings that he desires for them to have, for their joy. When kids don't learn how to honor members of the opposite sex in the home, when boys don't learn how to honor girls, right, because they've not been taught how to do that, it sets us up for the generation that we're in. I believe the reason there's so many of these Me Too stories that have happened is because there's a generation of boys who weren't taught in the home how to honor a female by their dad. So they go into life ill-equipped and don't know how to do that. And I believe that women need to be taught how to honor men. I believe honor is a principle of God's kingdom. And when we honor one another, right, it leads to joy. It leads to opportunity. It leads to blessing. It leads to healthy relationships. It leads to life. So I hope you're getting the picture. All oh, these commands, the point of them is maybe different than what you or I have been taught to believe. Last one that we're going to go over, uh, five, uh, chapter 5, verse 18, you shall not commit adultery. Now, surely if there was a command that was given not for our joy, but to keep us from, from joy, this is it, right? That's what we're taught. We're taught that the secret to joy is to go out and to have as much sex as you can with whoever you can, whenever you can. And if you'll do that, that will be joy. 
Again, life doesn't work that way. This command is built into God's plan for marriage, that marriage would be between a man and a woman committed together for life. And that within that context, that sexual relations would happen. And outside of that context, that they would not happen. I mentioned my fireplace, or the fire that I was trying to build. You know, fire is awesome when it's in the fireplace. When it's in the right place, it is a great blessing. If the fire were to jump out of the fireplace into my living room, then it would move from being a blessing to being very, very destructive. Maybe the most destructive thing there is. Sex is similar. Sex is like fire. When it's in the right place, in the right context, it's amazing. And when it's out of the place that God designed for it to be, right, it's very destructive. The statistics show that the people who experience the most sexual enjoyment, and I know we don't talk about this often in church, but we should. The people that experience the most sexual enjoyment, it comes within the context of a committed, monogamous, male-female marriage. The people that experience the most sexual frequency come in that same context. So God is not giving this command, you shall not commit adultery, because he's trying to keep you or keep me from something that would be good and joyful for us. It's because he's actually trying to lead us into something that would be greater joy, lasting joy, joy without regrets, joy without sorrow. Now, I realize you may not be a parent. I realize you may not uh, be in a, a sexual relationship with someone. I realize that. The point of these things is not that you would take the individual thing and be like, okay, this applies to my life. The point is that we would get underneath the command and we would see the why behind the what, and that our posture would change to realize God has a plan for my joy, and it's found in following his word. And so when we begin to think about whatever you filled in the blank with at the beginning of the service, whatever era you're wanting greater joy in, it's not that we're just going to pray and hope that God zaps us and somehow we get more joy. It's as we take his word this year, and we read it. We may say, God, you actually know what's best for me. I'm going to follow this. When we do that, the fruit over time is more joy in our lives, more joy in our relationships, more joy in our church, and more joy in our city. And with that, I wanna invite you to stand. Because Jesus has a passion for our joy, Jesus has a plan for our joy, but it does take our response. It does take our obedience. If you will not obey his teachings, he can't lead you into places of joy. And so as the officiants come forward, we're gonna take communion and we're gonna to go to God together. And as we go to the Lord, I wanna encourage you as the worship team leads us, you can come up and take of the bread and take of the cup. And as you do, I want you to remember God has a passion and a plan for your joy. And I want to challenge you and encourage you here at the beginning of the year to recommit your ways to the Lord. And say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you and I'm going to follow your word. And I'm trusting that it's going to lead me into places of joy, life, and blessing. I'm going to pray for us. The worship team is going to uh, lead us. And then when you're ready, you can come forward to take of communion. Jesus, we love you. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you have a passion and a plan for our joy. For every person here, Lord, you have a passion that they would be joyful, that they would be happy. 
and you have a plan to lead them into joy. And it's through your word. And I pray that by your grace, you would help us to respond to your word. You would help us to obey your word. You'd help us to follow your word, Lord. And we're trusting and we can see how it will bring greater and greater joy in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. When you're ready, you can come forward and take communion. Dead rose from their tombs, and the angels.